Hey, Dreamers, I can't believe it. We are so close to Dreamers Podcast existing for three whole years. To celebrate this amazing accomplishment, I have decided to put together a live event here just outside of Philadelphia, May 20th. DreamCon will be an all-day event where you can meet past guests, network with other Dreamers, and play minute-to-minute games to raise money for charity, and of course, so much more. Tickets are on sale now at superjoepardo.com slash dreamcon. I can't wait to see you all there. Hey, Dreamers. My guest today is making his dreams come true by serving others with a combination of his best strengths and skills in a way that delivers huge value to their lives. Dreamers, I give you Manny Wolf. Welcome to the show. Hey, Joe. Thank you so much. And uh, not to be a cliche, but man, it's great to be here. It is great to be here. <laughs> Please. Well, if it, you know, if it's great to be Everybody says that. <laughs> it is. I mean, you know, sitting here and well, we're not sitting in the studio. We're sitting in a couple of studios. Uh, <laughs> having a ch- uh, conversation over Skype as as many podcasts do, but uh, it's it's a pleasure to have you here. And um, you know, so we we met for the first time like I don't know four months ago in a video chat room. Thanks to our our good friend Samantha Riley, and um, she got to bring us together for for her Unlimited Influence Live. Uh, which was a great event in Santa Monica. I got to see you speak, and it was it was phenomenal. I was supposed to be in the back of the room working on my talk because I hadn't finished it yet uh, as far as the slides go, and I was working on really slow internet, and I kept <laughs> stopping because of the story that you were weaving uh, through the – I don't even know how long you talked. It was, it was like – it was over an hour, I think, right? Yeah, she gave, she said to me – Oh, things have changed. You've got a 90-minute time slot, and that's a terrible Australian accent, and I apologize to everybody from the UK and Australia for that. But <laughs> Yeah, you better. <laughs> yeah, there's, some, there's some things I can't do, and mentally differentiate the Aussie accent from the UK accents is one of them. But anyway, she said 90 minutes, and I was like, wow, that's a, that's a long time. And so what I did <clears throat> was I said, how do you feel about this, Sam? Um, I'm just going to go ahead and take like, 45 minutes of that and just tell them a story because that's what I'm there for, right? I'm there as the guy who teaches you how to use story to sort of identify your brand and and all that. We all know about the sort of hot storytelling right now. But I reasoned it this way. I thought to myself, if I can't tell you guys a story that knocks your socks off, who the hell cares what my uh, resume says, right? And so I just said, how would you feel if I did this instead of, you know, guiding them to a sale or something like that? What if I just told them a story and then taught them what I did within the story that made it powerful? And so that was it. Yeah, it was not only powerful, but also informative getting to learn uh, some of those pieces of the story where it's like, you you probably know these things, but you didn't know what they were called. Like, cause you know, we growing up in school, we we were taught like how story structure works and everything like mm-hmm. that. Um, and I can't even think of the words off the top of my head because I just woke up. But there are <laughs> things, and you could totally Google these things. But you you broke each of them down uh, into to a percentage and and almost into like a science of yeah. how to structure a story, even more than just the overview of like the. Um, 
the build up, the resolution, and the climax, and the I don't even know all the terms, but you know what I'm saying. <laughs> I do, yeah, yeah. Um, and it's important to understand those things because they're, you know, they're. There are a lot of different sort of psychological rules and concepts that we want to use to our advantage when we're telling people stories, right? For for one thing, the listener cares to the precise extent the listener is captivated. Right? I mean, it seems so obvious, and yet so many people miss it when they don't know how to craft details that draw you in, or they spend too much time. You were talking about the percentages. They spend too much time in the introduction. Or um, even even the resolution, right? All the time needs to be spent in the arc, the drama, the buildup, the struggle, and um, and so that's what I that's one of the things I broke down was like you know five percent in the front at the introduction, eighty five percent in the drama, and uh, maybe ten percent in the resolution, and and that makes a good balance because. We want to we want to be taken right at the beginning of the biggest challenge of the the story characters the uh, protagonist's life, like that's that's where we want to start and and that's you know this isn't something that I divined from reading the tea leaves or anything. This is what every enduring story throughout the written tradition and movies and and everything um, have in common. There's very little intro before the character is launched into the big adventure. Yeah, yeah, I would. Uh, well, it's because that's what grabs you, right? If you, if you had to give yeah. too much intro, it would uh, start to lull you. Unless the intro was like really interesting, but at that point, it wouldn't be an intro; it would be a prologue. Yeah, which would have its own arc and its own. <laughs> yeah, you know, exactly. Um, I think of a. I think I remember seeing Indiana Jones right when it came out in the theaters, and it got just such a seminal story. And uh, and I remember how they did the intro and. They um, the intro is very short before suddenly this mild mannered professor is doing all this crazy stuff. But even in the intro, you'll remember the classroom, the front row was all girls. Right. <laughs> and they're all looking at them all, all dreamy. And one of them has love you written on her eyelids. <laughs> <laughs> like it just grabs you right away. Instantly, you know, OK, here's this guy but there's obviously a lot going on with this guy because he's like a lecturing professor, most boring thing you could imagine. And yet, you know, he's got groupies. Oh, that's interesting. And then you find out why, because he's like the most fearless guy in the world. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, you definitely want to, to take people and move them right away. And, and that's where those percentages come from. So why don't you get into the background of of what it, even before like you getting to write a book because I mean you're you're an author and you're a speaker but why don't you get into some of the background of of how you got to this point? Yeah, um, so through a fantastical and not to be believed childhood, I um. You know, I, I really I looked back one day and I realized, wow, my life really fits the hero's journey archetype well. And then I had my fiance say to me one day, not related to that that realization, she said, you know, you got to write a story. You got to write a book. And I, I, I don't know, there was something about the way she said it in that day, in that moment where I just couldn't 
sort of be nonchalant about it. I don't know what exactly happened. Right person, right time, right set of circumstances. I told her I'd do it. As I started examining my life, I was like, wow, like that's really bizarre. <laughs> you know, I was so to fill your readers, your listeners, sorry, in a little bit. Um, I was born into a cult and I want to focus most of my life, my childhood experiences on the communication aspect for your guys and girls that are listening. Um, in the cult, language was treated a very specific way. And what it was, what they did was something called subversion of language or subversion of meaning, right? And and that's that's a deliberate mechanism used in situations where you want to control a person's behavior. What you can do is you can you can give different meanings than the common meanings to words, phrases, and ideas. Now, this may seem very benign, but what happens, especially if you are introduced to this as a child, is it will limit, and in my case, almost completely disconnect your ability to relate to, talk to, or connect with people outside of the group. Because I gave an example at that speech, Joe, I picked up a glass of water and I said, imagine all your life you were told this was a dog, right? How could you possibly, you know, how could you possibly relate to somebody else who didn't understand that same uh, uh, subverted meaning for that thing? When you're thirsty, you ask for a dog. It doesn't make any sense. Right. So, well, outside of the circle, that's for outside sure. of the circle. So you start to see the power that manipulating language can have. I don't know if you or, or anyone that is listening has read the classic 1984 by George Orwell, but he delivers a brilliant, brilliant dissection of the power of manipulating language. And I won't go any further into it here because we've got other fish to fry. So, <laughs> so that was my childhood up till eight years old. At eight years old, we moved to an incredibly violent Mexican ghetto which I still haven't gotten any explanation as why we would do that, where we stood out like sore thumbs and I had to fight all the time, every day, from the first day we moved in there. Um, but the, the important thing there was that even through all that, I noticed there was a whole different language happening, you, you know, like you might call it another language environment outside of my house. And so I'd go outside and over time I learned how to speak, quote unquote, the language and I got some sort of limited acceptance from the kids in the neighborhood for that. Still had to fight all the time, but it just, it changed. When I learned how to speak the language, there were changes. Then my blood family sort of started to separate from the group and we moved to another part of the same city. It was not safe, but it was much safer. And so I went outside more, right? And I, and I participated with other kids more. And this part of the, the city was, uh, it wasn't like exclusively a Mexican ghetto with one white family in it. It was like there were Mexican kids, white kids, black kids, you know, Vietnamese kids, Chinese kids. It was a melting pot area, which was really cool. First of all, because I didn't have to fight as much. <laughs> but second of all, because by this time, I was like on a survival level cued into the way people talk. You know, because I, I mean, it's a very powerful experience to learn that if you talk the right way, you have to fight less. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, totally. And I mean, I'm, yeah. I, I'm just letting you tell 
your your story because I I I've heard a lot of this already in your you know through your your talk at yeah unlimited yeah. influence. So noticing that that you know the kids that looked a certain way talked a certain way, I started to just pay attention to how everybody spoke. And so seriously, by the time I was like sixteen, I could talk myself out of so much. <laughs> like I just would like. You know, I learned how adults talked. I learned how adults talked in professional settings. I learned how to talk to girlfriends, parents. And it just seemed so second nature that it took many, many years later before I kind of realized, wow, there, this is a, actually a specific high-level skill set that not everybody has. And so, um, you know, I just kept nurturing that interest and that curiosity in communication until the point where... You know, you could imagine it like um, like fruit growing on a tree and finally the fruit gets so heavy that the branches sag and the fruit falls. That's kind of how it was. It was just like one day it just got to the point where everybody seemed to agree that this was kind of my specialty. And so I started studying it in school and I started taking acting classes and, you know, um, until finally I was able to connect all the dots and say, wow, this is this is what I do. And so that's sort of the short, short, short version of getting from there to here. <laughs> <laughs> the really short version. <laughs> no, totally understandable. I mean, you. So you you have this book uh, yeah. called uh, "Where's the?" It's right here. The, the Tao of the Unbreakable Man. Yeah. And I, you know, it's I I wanted to ask. Now you don't have to answer this, but I was curious what which cult were you a part of. Is it a famous it, cult or not so famous cult? Not so famous. Yeah, okay. it was the One World Family Commune. Huh. And actually for 37 years, I didn't even know it was a cult. I didn't know it was a cult until I was working with a therapist to try to figure out why all of my relationships seemed to crumble like dust at a certain point, specifically my my intimate relationships. And um, what she said to me was, she said, you know, I kept referring to it as the commune, the commune, the commune, and how, you know, how that they spoke differently in the commune. And she said, why don't you try this? Why don't you go home and Google a checklist of the, the things that need to be present for something to be classified as a cult? And I did. And virtually everything down the checklist was, was, was there. So it fit almost every criteria. Um, one of the things we didn't have was like a religious zealotry, but we had a new age spiritual zealotry. So it was about the same. Um, and there, so it was like 98% of the checklist was just bam, 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 bam. So that was when I realized, oh, I wasn't just born into a commune with a bunch of hippies. This was like a full blown mind control environment. Um, and so that really helped me. And then there was some other stuff about, she said, instead of saying, that you have hangups with with trying to you know have your relationships work right and money. Why don't you try on the phrase brainwashed? And you know that's how she sort of introduced me to the fact that these problems I was grappling with were much bigger than I was describing them. Um, right, right. No, that makes perfect sense. Uh, and and in introduced in a way that um, lets you kind of figure it out for yourself without forcing it down your throat that Precisely. you know what I mean go, brainwashing you effectively again into thinking yeah. <laughs> that this is what it was when they weren't there 
Um, yeah. It's just from what you describe because it's what you recall and, and how you recall it. So uh, that's that's awesome uh, that you're – I'm sorry, therapist or uh, – Yeah, she was, therapist. she was a therapist, yeah. Uh, helped you help you get there from you know get uh get there from there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. So. So how like once you decided that you got it in your your mind that you wanted to write this book, uh, what were some of the first steps that you took? I mean, since I guess you had never written any books before that. I had not, <laughs> and in <laughs> fact, um. I think one of the things I was the most daunted by was the thought of writing a whole book. You know, I, I've always sort of taken naturally as an extension of being fascinated by language. I've, I've, I've read widely and deeply, you know, and always been just fascinated by like the ability of some, some of the great writers there's just something magical about when someone articulates a thing so well that you know exactly what they mean, you know? And I just honestly never thought I could do that. I never thought I could do that. And then my fiance said to me, you have to write a book. And she sort of cornered me in a way and I, I didn't have an out. So I said, I'd do it. I, well, I went home and started writing that evening and uh, it was kind of funny, man. It was kind of funny because I'd get about 15 or 20 pages in and realize, oh my God, I'm trying to sound like this author. Like I'm totally ripping off this writer who I love. Right. And so I'd start from scratch again, go, nope, this sounds like this author. (laughs) And I, I mean, I seriously got like, I must've had about 150 pages total of sounding like different writers. And it was like, okay, first you sound like John Steinbeck, then Kurt Vonnegut. Now you sound like Mark Twain and on and on and on. And it was very derivative. And so what happened, here's how it all came together. And it was a very strange way that it all came together. I had, I had tried to write the book from my birth moving forward, which actually would, you know, would fit that story structure. Right. But, um, that's not actually the biggest drama point of my life was not my birth. The biggest drama point of my life at that time was um, the end of the recession of 2008. And I had, I had a day where I lost everything in one day. And by everything, I mean my house, my car, my electricity, and my driver's license within a five-hour period. So I lost everything, you know, not my health, not my son, mercifully, but pretty much everything. And uh, the shortest story there is that my sister says, I'm going to have a family meeting and we're going to figure out how we can help you. And for the listeners who don't know, my family doesn't have family meetings. So it was a really bad feeling for me. I was like, oh, okay. So I go to this family meeting and it turns out to be basically an intervention. you know. And forget about the fact that whole countries are on the brink of economic collapse. I'm getting blamed for everything by my whole family. And it was just a bloodletting. It was just them lashing out because fundamentally I'm different than they are, right? I'm an entrepreneur. I'm a dreamer, if you will. I'm a vision guy. I'm I'm like Sinatra. I got to do it my way, you know? And it always rubbed them the wrong way. So instead of helping me, they just basically 
kicked the crap out of me when I was already down. And then to add insult to injury, Joe, <laughs> the, the big reveal finally comes. The big help that's finally being offered is they'll take my, my sister and, my, and her husband offered to take my son and provide for him while I was getting back on my feet, which in and of itself is a very noble thing. But then they said this, her husband of all people looks at me and said, I've taken the liberty of having a lawyer draw up some papers outlining your visitation, if you'll just sign here. And I just lost it. <laughs> I just lost it, man. Uh. I mean, so what you need to know too there, to put it in context, that is in my world, if before that day, if someone in my family was struggling like that, I would say to them, come live with me, period, end all. That's it, right? Come stay with me. That's all you need to know. We'll make it work. And to to have it be so insensitive, so so cold and calculated and transactional and, and sort of, you know, where they're protecting themselves, it just, it, it made me sick to my stomach. And that was when I realized that A, I had to separate myself from my family. And B, in the in the context of writing my book, I realized that's where I need to start. Right? That's the story that starts the story. So here's what happened. When I started from there, the weirdest thing happened. Suddenly, as I'm writing out the first chapter, which is all about that that meeting, I could see the whole book layout in front of me. I had the whole format of it. And bizarrely enough, I started writing in my own voice. Now, I can't tell you why that happened. I have no idea. But everything fell into place when I realized I shouldn't start from the beginning of my life. And from there, the book flowed. I mean, I would then get into the uh, online world and realize there were people who could help you write a book in a month and even a weekend and those books are garbage. <laughs> those, those books are, by and large, those books are a bunch of a bunch of crap, and they're just meant to position you as an authority in your field. This was a, you know, my my story there is a very honest, revealing story about all the ways I screwed up, all the ways I was screwed up. It, in other words, it was a story that should take time and did. But I was so inspired once I hit that starting point, I wrote the whole thing in seven months. Oh, I love that. Uh, you know, it, it um, when you, when you get it to that point where you're just like, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna do it, and I do it, and then I mean, seven months is, for for a book the size uh, of yours that that is very very quick. Um, for anyone who who doesn't know, so yeah. that, that's that's awesome that you uh you just told, you know it, it, a lot of times that's what it comes down to. It's like I'm gonna do this. Yeah, totally. And, and that's what it comes down to is is I'm going to do this. I'm going to do it right now. And I'm going to do do it my way to borrow a pun. Uh yeah, yeah, yeah. and yeah, then it that's it's that's so awesome. It was it was really an amazing experience and it was you know, for me, we all have if we are dreamers and entrepreneurs and big vision people, you know, um and and other types of sort of misfits <laughs> <laughs> I say lovingly. Um, it's like we all go through that period, that initial period where nobody gets us, right? Where we don't fit in because we have this other way of seeing things. And what I've found that's fascinating to me is each of us will sort of have a moment or an experience or like in my case, the, the book 
an experience and a project at the same time that becomes the key that introduces us to this whole other world that you and I have been fortunate enough to find where we can access, and thanks to the internet now, we can access globally the rest of this community of people who don't do things the normal way. And that's what the book was for me. It was my sort of like uh, my, my key to the kingdom, you know, and um, man, I'm so glad that I wrote it, not only to get it all out on paper, but because it's led me to this whole other world. And that's the world I'm in now. And that's the world where I met you and Sam and, you know, and I'm never going back. <laughs> like, like never. <laughs> <laughs> I do not blame you. I do not blame you at all. Um, so, so what would you say? Uh, oh no. Oh yeah. Oh, sorry. (laughs) 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 So what, what did your family say when you uh, let them know? I assume you probably didn't. Did you tell many people like while you were doing this book or did you wait until it was done to like spring it on them? Interesting question, and here's why. Um, I didn't I didn't push the fact that I was writing it on anyone. I told people as it made sense and as it was organic and natural. And I I really wasn't speaking to my family at that point. And so, you know, I am at the point now where I have long since found forgiveness, but I still don't interact with them. But during the writing of the book, um, actually prior to the writing of the book, a really ironic thing was happening. Let me say that a different way. A thing that would prove to be ironic was happening. (laughs) My mom set out to write her memoirs uh, two years before I wrote that book, right? And she, she would do this thing all the time where it's like she would passive aggressively ask for acceptance and forgiveness for whatever it was that she was about to write that nobody even knew by saying things like this to me and to the other siblings, to to her other kids. She'd go, well, I'm writing my memoir and, uh, you know, you might not like it. So I hope that's okay. (laughs) That's so, that's so passive aggressive. Right. And so in the beginning, I'd say to her, Hey, do what you got to do. Right. Just go for it. If, If it's inside of you, do it. But after she did this like a dozen times or so, I kind of started turning and saying, like, what are you asking me to forgive you for here? You know, what are you going to say that's so bad that you've had to say the same thing to me like, you know, a dozen times or more? And I started saying, like, I can't just summarily tell you I'm going to be forgiving you for whatever you write when it's obviously incendiary in your mind. But uh, do it anyway. And I always stuck with that. If you feel you got to do it, do it, right? Well, then two years later, I'd start writing mine. She never finished hers. Um, And one day, close to the Christmas holiday, she said, are you going to come around for Christmas? And I was just, I said, you know, I've uh, I've been writing this story of my life. And a lot of raw feelings are coming up. And so I don't really feel like I want to spend a lot of time with you guys right now. And she said, oh, okay, I totally understand. And so fast forward to a long time of really not talking to each other. And she runs into me uh, out in public. And I tell her I finished that book. And she says, I want to read it. (laughs) And I Uh. said, are you sure? 
you know, and and um, I said I go into a lot of detail about you know that meeting that you guys had with me and and the way that the way that I feel that a lot of really delicate things were handled. So it's raw, you know. I don't think you'll like it. She said, "Nope, I want to read it." I said, "Okay." So she comes over and she gets an early manuscript and she reads it, and lo and behold, she gets her feelings hurt. And I'm just kind of like, well, you know. You could look at that whole experience as as you went to a restaurant, you picked something off the menu, the waiter said you shouldn't order that, and then, and then you ordered it anyway, and then complained to the waiter you didn't like it. It's kind of on you at that point. Um, so, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I definitely understand that that notion, and uh, I mean, t- to this day, has has her memoirs uh, been finished? No, not not that I know of, um, you know, and that that me writing the book and and by the way, for your listeners, um, I worked very hard to never make myself a victim or a hero in that book. And I think that's important when you're trying to tell a true story. You know, I, I didn't look to make my family victims or heroes either. I didn't make them bad guys. I just, I sought to just say the things that happened, sort of let the chips fall where they may. Now, the truth is that they did some things that any decent person would be sort of embarrassed and ashamed of. Those things happened, you know, but I didn't paint them as evil villains and I didn't paint myself as as anything that I wasn't. And, uh, and in fact, the book is very self-critical at times. And so, um, uh, <clears throat> I kind of lost, tra- <laughs> kind of lost my train of thought there, man. I get so <laughs> emotional. Sometimes I forget what the hell I'm talking about, but, um, my mom never finished hers as far as I know. And I think what I was going to say is that, that writing the book really sort of put a put a big separation between that 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 myself and them. Hmm. Yeah. Well, you know, when you write books that are very, you know, based around your life and your perspective, I mean, I'm sure yeah. they could write a book and I'm sure they are, there was probably reasoning on their end that things went the way and did they did what they did that um, you know, there's every story sure. has two sides to it. So you bet. Yeah. Um, it, you know, it's just, it, it's just, but that's just the way it is. So, um, hopefully I assume you, you still talk to your mom though. Uh, not really right now. Oh, okay. Yeah. But you know, there's, there's a lot of reasons there far deeper than just the writing of the book or the, or the meeting that we had. Um, and it kind of, you know, I can take this and make it into sort of a, a teaching point for the struggling entrepreneurs that might be listening. Or, or the successful ones. When you are stuck trying to serve two masters, one master being your vision, your entrepreneurial drive, your spirit that sort of insists that you do things your own way, right? And the other master being trying to fit into the very powerful um, expectations of a family unit. It gets to be really difficult. And I never realized... I never realized how much power the need to sort of feel like I was part of my family unit had over me 
until I said to myself, I'm done. And so one of the things that happened in my own family life, and this may not be the same for everyone, but I suspect a lot of people will be able to relate to this, is a lot of sort of damage gets done that doesn't ever get repaired. And, you know, we know each other for so long because we're family that things that should get resolved tend to get swept under the rug. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yes, I, so, I do. Yeah. And so, but here's the thing. It's very important not to leave things unresolved because from the, from the perspective of what my specialty is now, which is communication, I can tell you that the reasons that parents and children or siblings can get set off with each other so easily is because of the backlog of unresolved issues, even if they're small, right? That's why um, in an interaction that nobody looking on from outside can even see what happened, a parent and a child can get upset with each other. And so every time we do resolve something that needs to be resolved, what happens there is it's partially wiping the slate clean. And then the communication can flow and understanding can occur without this sort of backlog of expectations and frustrations. However, when we don't resolve what should be resolved, that's all that shows up when we talk to each other. And so it becomes so easy to throw a spark on dry, on dry grass, you know, whereas if there was resolution, that wouldn't be the case. So in my own family, there was so much of that backlog. There was so much because they all adopted this similar sort of sweep it under the rug, just don't talk about it mentality. And I was like, no, let's talk about it. Let's talk about everything. I've always been like that to the point where I drive people crazy sometimes. <laughs> and, um, and so part of the reason that there's still not talking between my family and I is because at this point, it would just be too unhealthy for me to go back and try to mend fences, build bridges, whatever construction analogy you want to use, because there's too much of that unresolved stuff. Yeah, you know, I I, <laughs> I know a lot about what you're saying. I uh, I think it's you're putting it very putting it very well uh, for anybody who who doesn't uh, have that experience of having unresolved things for one reason or another, whoever's, you know, fault it is, but feeling unresolved is, um, I think that's a great way of putting why things, you know, spark off the way they do. Yeah. uh, Very quickly, uh, between two people and, and especially in a family. um, Yeah. When it, when it comes to, to that. So, yeah, because it's, it's never usually about whatever the thing is that we're talking about. It's it's no. more than likely something else from like a lo- or a long history of something else is. Yeah, uh, that we don't see up front it, or feel. It's up almost always the case, Joe. I mean, you're you're spot on. So I could use, I could use the speech that I did at, at Ultimate Influence Unlimited Influence Live as an example of what happens when you connect and when there's no backlog of stuff to resolve, right? Um, I went back and I watched my own presentation to analyze it and see where I might make changes and things like that. And what I noticed that was really cool was 
watching it on a video, um, there were a lot of places where I didn't finish thoughts completely and I didn't, um, I didn't really lay out all the details that would make a listener just tuning in know what I was talking about. But the thing was, is we had so much connection already that the people in the crowd could easily fill in the gaps, right? That's the kind of connection you have when you, when things are flowing the way they're supposed to with communication, right? We instantly, as humans, we start creating communication shorthand with each other. And this happens with tone and body language almost exclusively, but, and with words just a little bit. But if you've got backlog of unresolved stuff, it, it clogs up those channels, right? It makes it harder to get that communication shorthand. But here's the thing. All the magic of connecting lies in that ability to create that shorthand, that ability to quickly relate, quickly connect, and just sort of drop defenses and listen to each other. That's when communication becomes, you know, um, working with another person's soul, right? It becomes working on sacred ground where we can really connect to each other in a deep, deep way that allows us to potentially be changed by our interactions. So it's not a small thing to leave things unresolved with people you love. You know, it's um, it's akin to sort of planting cancer cells, really. It's it's really a big deal. Um, so, Manny, what's been the biggest roadblock for you? I guess with the specifically related to the book. Well, what do you mean roadblock? <clears throat> so like, so what was something that that got, you got hung up on while trying to write the book in seven months? Uh, putting expectations on myself, you know, to the extent that I could stay free of expectations and sort of circumvent the voices in my head that said things like, oh, you have to write this so it'll appeal to everyone. And, and I had heard, uh, book writing coaches and publishers say books should be written at a sixth grade reading level. I really struggled with those ideas. Right. And so if I let those ideas take hold, what would happen was the flow and the sort of the juiciness of, of the experience of writing would get constricted. And so then I'd take a step back, try to figure out what I was doing. And at some point I just said, you know what, I'm going to write this book as though I'm the ideal reader, a guy with a big vocabulary who loves to be intellectual, likes to think deeply. Um, I'm just going to write it for me. And so that would free up the the creativity channels. Um, I got really lucky, Joe. I got really, really just amazingly lucky in that my fiance, she pretty much insisted that writing the book was my top priority the whole time I was writing it. If I would try to get distracted by other tasks, she'd be like, ah, 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 you know? <laughs> And it's, uh, it, I mean, it's amazing to have someone like that in your life. It's just incredible. She had absolute belief, do it, and that it would change my life. And she was right on both counts. <laughs> no, I don't think we got into it. When, when did the book originally release? The book has only been out for nine months. Okay. 
Yeah, so I think I think nine months. I, it came out last year. I don't even remember <laughs> the the exact uh, launch date, but so it hasn't been out very long. It uh, it shot to international bestseller in its categories in seventy two hours. Oh, on oh, through Amazon. Yeah. Oh, awesome. Yeah, that was crazy, man. I didn't expect that at all, and I, and I think that largely had to do with you know. There are a lot of people that follow me um, on Facebook and things like that that do it silently, that that I don't know are constantly paying attention to everything I put out there. And when the book came out, all those people were just like, you know, they just all rushed over and and grabbed their copy. And I remember my uh, I had a coach working with me um, for the launch, and she (laughs) she sent me a snapshot in like, it was like 29 hours after release that it went to number one in the U.S. <laughs> it's just wow. like, is this photoshopped? Are you kidding me? You know? <laughs> and then my fiance found the uh, the UK, the UK Amazon chart. And she's like, look at this. It's like, holy cow. Wow. But that, yeah, so, awesome. so there were there weren't a lot of challenges with it, which is really not the way I'm used to living my life, you know, (laughs) but up until the last few years, uh, up until the last few years, everything has sort of really changed now that I am. And I hate to use this kind of terminology, but now that I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing, you know, um, my, my life has been so much smoother and easier. Oh, I bet. You know, when we do when we figure out what it is that we're supposed to be doing and we start doing it, um, you know, there there might not always be money like raining out of the sky at first. Right. Right. But at least we're happy doing it. And that's something I always, you know, like to to tell people It's like, yeah, you know, I I did what I loved for for like two years before I started really making any money at it. And yeah, but but the thing is, I was happy every single one of those days. And every single day that I'm happy is one less day on this earth that I'm uh, let, not happy. happy right <laughs> yeah. so it's like i don't have to go back and relive those days like i'm not extending my life by an extra like i mean i might be by years or whatever but but it's like you know what i mean like it's just less time i had to spend unhappy i know exactly what you mean and the thing that that i would add to that that i don't think maybe people understand until they get fortunate enough to experience it is you know we talk like in the transformation space, in the entrepreneurial space, this theme of changing your life is ever present, isn't it? Yes, it is. It's constantly Here's the thing. changing. Here's the thing, though. What I want people to take away and, and realize and learn is that to change your life, all you have to do is change the way you feel each day. That literally is changing your life. You know, and so you don't have to win the lottery and then get to date a Spice Girl or, or you know, whatever it is to, to change your life. And just like you said, you went through two years of not making very much money, but being totally happy. That's what I did, too, Joe. That's exactly what I did. As soon as I wrote the book and then I launched a podcast and the podcast went to number one, too. And it was like, oh, my God, yay. And it was like an indie movie, by the way. It got lots of critical acclaim, but nobody listened to it. <laughs> <laughs> I never got massive downloads, but you know, it it opened up again an, another world of people 
who were dynamic and doing cool things and were interested in what I was doing. And, and all that stuff was alien to me before discovering this world. And so I did almost exactly. I went through about two years where it's like, yeah, okay, I'm making a little money here. I'm making a little money there. But every day is awesome. You know what I mean? It's like every single day I just go, wow, like this is so different than the kid who had to fight every day and was born in a, you know, cult and raised in a ghetto and all this stuff and drugs and jail and crime and violence. And that was my life until I was 28 years old. And then after 28, my life was the deepest introspection and self-examination you could imagine. Like it was monk level. You know, it was like silent retreat level deep. And I didn't have any friends. I didn't socialize. I, I just thought that this was the rest of my life was going to be this like silent, contemplative, inward searching kind of experience. And uh, boy, was I wrong, man. <laughs> <laughs> Manny, what, what was your childhood dream growing up? Uh, to be a superhero. It really was. I, I I didn't have anything resembling a realistic dream. Um, but I did go back as a man and do very deliberate work to sort of look back at every period in my life and what I was trying to do. And then once I had those things, I said, okay, what are the commonalities of all of these things? And then once I got the commonalities, I said, are there any deeper commonalities? And that process took a long time, Joe. And what it came down to at the very bottom of it all was I was always trying to use communication to help people. And so as a superhero, I would have helped people, right? I would have used communication to ward off the bad guys. And then I would have used, of course, fighting to ward them off. Um, then I tried to like, I did this thing when I was young, before I had ever taken a martial arts class, I tried to give all the kids in my neighborhood martial arts lessons. And I wound up having to get my ass kicked a lot for it. And, you know, but the thing that that had in common with being a superhero was helping other people, defending other people and connecting with communication. And then when I got older, I would throw parties and I'd throw big elaborate parties. Guess what? That's just another way of bringing people together to communicate. Then I studied acting and music. Those are just forms of communication. All through my life, I was a great illustrator. That's just another way of communicating. So it's like I did this big reductive process to realize that connecting with other people through communication was at the heart of everything I was ever passionate about. And here we and, are. And, and here we are. And you're you're yeah. speaking and communicating on a bigger uh, bigger and bigger platform. No, I, I mean that's how that's how it generally goes with people that I interview. They, they're doing some form of what they um, wanted to do as, as a kid, or for the reason that in which they wanted to do it as yeah. a kid. So uh, no, that, that's awesome. Yeah, it it really. I mean, you know, I wake up every day going, "Holy cow, man! <laughs> like I'm I'm doing my life's purpose," you know. <laughs> and I know you know this firsthand. I know you do. But that's an indescribable and absolutely just validating an amazing feeling. It it's, is. It really, it really yeah, is. It's just um, phenomenal. You know, I never would have... Uh, 
thought that I'd be doing what I'm doing now, but when, when I go back and look at the path in which I took to get here, uh, it all just makes sense. Yeah. Uh, it, you know, all the pieces fall together. So yeah. Um, what do your dreams for the future look like now? Well, so it's just, you know, it's just put a ma- putting a magnifying glass on what I'm doing already, really. I have a couple of like really sort of non sequitur um, fun business ideas I'm going to be pursuing. But for the most part, I'm I'm refining my content, my core, my core teaching content of, you know, body language, voice, and storytelling, and I'm going deeper and deeper and deeper with it so that I can take it to higher and higher levels. And, uh, you know, I'd say my my big goal, if my, my big swinging for the fences dream is I'd like to personally coach Elon Musk on, uh, perform, on stage presentation. Well, I mean, that's definitely something that could wind up happening. It could. It totally could. He is my absolute hero as far as people who are still alive go and he's a terrible presenter and you know i don't think i've ever actually watched any of his presentations yeah. so i mean that probably speaks to speaks to yeah that. i mean i, I totally interested in what he's doing and 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 who he is but i i've never actually taken the time to you know it's not the same as like when you know steve jobs would take the the stage yeah. every time like here's I would go out of my way to make sure I watch Here's it. an interesting <laughs> fact about Steve Jobs, too, as it relates to uh, public speaking and communication. He paid tens of thousands of dollars to study vaudeville stage, um, stage application, stage theory. He studied presentation. He was trained to speak, right? If you, if you watch his early um, product launches, his product releases – and you and you like watch him sequentially to the later ones. You'll see that he moved to that really strong black and white visual aesthetic. You'll see that his movements changed over time. All of that he paid tens of thousands of dollars to learn. Oh wow! Well, I'm not surprised. I mean, uh, dude had had the money to, <laughs> to pay whatever it costs to make that happen. But I think the thing that's so cool about it is that he realized the value of it. You know, that's the thing that I think is so amazing for him. Tens of thousands of dollars is nothing. But the fact that he realized how much more impactful it would be to, for instance, wear the black turtleneck against the black backdrop and pull the small white device out of his pocket, you know, like that was all deliberate. And I just love that. I love that so much. <laughs> well, I mean, part of the reason that he wore uh, the the black turtleneck was his experiences uh, in. I'm pretty sure in Japan, where the he would, you know, he met with some people that were they wore the same thing every single day, because uh, he wanted to take away that. Uh, well, I guess part a little part branding, but really it just took away the options so that he could spend his brain power doing other important things. <laughs> To not have to think about. Yeah, it. but it could have been any color tank top or t- or turtleneck, couldn't it? Oh, it would have been great if it was a tank yeah. top. <laughs> but I'm saying that you know, um, there was there was stagecraft, there was stagecraft um, influencing those decisions. It wasn't just you know uh, streamlining the the ex- the superfluous uh, choice and decision making uh, energy. Mm. So. 
So, is there any before we share how people can connect with you? Is there any last thoughts you'd like to share? Man, you know if if somehow somebody listening to this got inspired to if they were holding back now and they got inspired to really go for it, I would say you're about to find out how to get a hold of me. Send me a message and let me know because that would mean the world to me. That would be the most amazing thing I could I could possibly get in terms of feedback. You know, if people want to work with me and stuff like that, that's awesome too. I love that. But to know that I've really reached someone is is such a big part of why I do what I do. So that's what I would say. Be like, oh, you heard this and, and because of this, you got the courage to take action. That's what I want to know about. I couldn't agree more. And that's that's always what I uh, I strive for is to, to be able to bring people to the point where they want to go and do yeah. something. Um, awesome. All right. So how can people connect with you? Manny? Well, so my website is mannywolf.com, M-A-N-N-Y. W O L F E. I assume you'll link that. Um, and then if you want to get a hold of me directly, you can just shoot me an email at Manny at MannyWolf.com. Um, I strive to be accessible. You know, I, I really don't want to be one of those people that, that you can't reach as my, as my sphere of influence grows. I'm on Facebook as Manny Wolf. And so it's easy to find me there as well. Send me a friend message, a friend request rather, but include a message because I'll have to delete someone to let you in. <laughs> That's just the way it is now. Also, you could go to my my professional, my public figure page, which I guess the uh, the un, you can have unlimited friends on those. But um, yeah, so that's it. It's pretty simple. You know, I don't use Twitter. I don't use Instagram. Um, but you can find me on Facebook and at Manny at MannyWolf.com. Awesome. Well, I will have, definitely have those in the show notes at dreamerspodcast.com for everybody to check out. And I definitely recommend uh, reaching out to Manny. Uh, he's, I'm so happy to have you here. Uh, such a great guest, such an amazing story. And uh, so, so proud of you to, to make it to this point in your life where not only did you um, get out of the, the, the terrible situation that you um, were brought into, but um to to go and actually do something that you want to do and, and make change in the world instead of just playing it safe on the sidelines. Yeah, thank you very much. You know, uh, Hemingway said, the world breaks us and some of us become stronger in the broken places. And, uh, and I think that that's always stuck with me. You know, I think that that sort of sums me up. <laughs> <laughs> well, just like muscles, they got to break down before they can get better you know get stronger and bigger exactly and better. so all right well thank you so much manny i really appreciate you taking the time to come here on the dreamers podcast and i'd love to have you on again in the future to follow up and see how you i'd been. love that my friend thank you for joining us for this episode of the dreamers podcast follow us on twitter at dreamers podcast join us on facebook at facebook.com slash dreamers podcast If you or someone you know would like to be a guest on the Dreamers Podcast, please send an email to j at jpar.co. This podcast is copyright 2014 by jpar.co.